Transit Voices with Ben Whitaker. Welcome to Transit Voices. We're joined this month by Andy Taylor, a lifetime public transport user who's worked Cubic, MasterCard, and is president of the Mass Alliance. He's talking to us today about the rollout of contactless EMV, things that might hold back adoption of new technology from riders, and of course, our favorite picks on the boondoggle and underdog for the industry. Let's get started with Andy and find out a few things about how to get our products fully adopted by the widest amount of the public. Now, let's get talking. So welcome to Transit Voices, Andy Taylor. Thank you so much for coming on for a chat with us today. Those who have met Andy will have probably uh, seen him during his cubic days involved in some of the big rollouts there, as well as his role at Mass Alliance and now his move to MasterCard. Andy, thank you so much for coming on. I wonder, could you tell us a bit more about yourself, but also everybody has a story of how they first got into transit. If you could tell us what your path into it, that would be great. So how are we going to transit? I think I've always been in sort of public transportation. When I sort of grew up in the UK, it was from a very working class background. We didn't have a car. If we wanted to get anywhere, we had to use public transport. So it was like the local buses in Wolverhampton. It was the trains to and from sort of seaside resorts as necessary. And the rest of the time was on my bike or walking between sort of relatives and friends' houses. So... For me, it's always been a case of public transport was the first option. And I think that's sort of been ingrained in me all of these years. Now, when I'm working sort of public transportation, it's very much a case of it's the only mode of mobility for some people. And I think people overlook that, which is why I've always had a bit of a passion for making sure that public mobility is as best it possibly can be. For me, myself, I was very late to learning to drive. I was in my sort of late 20s. So like I say, it's always been about sort of making my own way around and using public transport. And that extended to when I started becoming an air traffic controller a long, long time ago. I was based in Europe and I had to sort of use the European public transport systems. I had to go and get a bike when I was living in the Netherlands and cycle for an hour and a half to get to the air traffic control centre. And I did that for several years. And then I went into the research and development side of that. And then that helped me sort of move to the USA. The company I was working with at the time put me in the US and it just evolved from there. I sort of evolved into from air traffic control to airports, to aviation, to transportation. And then the company I was working for got acquired by Cubic and they sort of moved me over to the public transportation side, Cubic Transportation Systems. And from there, that's it reignited my passion to make sure that public transportation works as, as effectively that it possibly can to make sure that everybody has the best access that they can. The years you've been there have seen quite a move from the, the default of everything is about smart cards and closed cards and everything controlled by the agency into something more open where there's been a proliferation both of the sort of mobile ticket, bring your own ticket, as well as contactless EMV coming relatively suddenly after the TFL initial rollout. We now find that at agencies that have pushed it, it's become the biggest metro style ticket is contactless EMV. And then we look at longer distance booked tickets in the UK, and the biggest on that is mobile tickets now on the barcode. But in some countries, it's not been quite such a slam dunk. Uh, Do you have any opinions on, especially in North America, some of the agencies who've done a contactless EMV rollout but still had relatively low adoption compared to, say, what we see in London? It's difficult in a way to sort of try and give you a a sort of a one single answer to this one. There's so many different factors which are sort of playing into the adoption of contactless. I think from an, an agency perspective, what I've seen over the years 
is the need to provide as many viable solutions for people to provide access to mobility as possible. So it started out with sort of putting money in a fare box and then sort of evolved to sort of closed loop cards. But while you still need closed loops to provide concessions in some instances, you know, the adoption of contactless and people trying to follow the, the lead that Transport for London took has sort of really seen that sort of adoption in certain regions of the world. I think when you sort of layer on that as well, other options that people want, you know, being able to access mobility through their mobile phone, uh, mobile ticketing, being accessing through smart devices using their Apple Watch or whatever Fitbit device that they're wearing. It's providing easier and simpler access to the majority of people so that they there's no question about how you get access to mobility. It's just delivered how you want it delivered. I think with that comes issues as well. The more you actually increase the amount of options, the complexity for the transit agency increases as well. But they are trying to provide 100% solutions for all their population. That's their remit that they have to do. So it's it's about making sure that you have as many options as possible to give people that access. Now, when it comes to contactless, yes, it's going to vary from region to region. It depends on the, the bank rates associated in different regions, and that's going to drive adoption. When you say like, bank rates, do you mean the percentage of riders who have a bank account and a payment card, or are you talking about the transaction fees which are levied yeah. by the banks? A bit of both. And I think one drives the other. If you look at Europe, where the EU has sort of fixed the interchange rates, what can be charged by the schemes, I think you've seen a bigger adoption of contactless. When you look in the US, where the US government basically fixed the Durbin agreement a few years ago, it's a case of they actually sort of fixed the rates and the banks set the rates at a, a sort of certain level. Then it became more of a barrier to entry for what I would consider sort of the transit sort of market. It's all very well and good if you're buying like a sofa and you want to pay like a 21 cents interchange fee. But if you're paying like a $2.50 transit ticket, then it becomes a large percentage of the, the, the actual fair value. So the actual agency is getting, getting less at the end of the day. So there needs to be some thought gone into this now. How do we make maybe a new market for high volume, low transactional value fees for the banks that are going to be charged? How are you actually going to sort of implement that to promote contactless? Because there is this massive halo effect. When you see contactless adoption on public transportation, you see a, a sort of an increase of ut utilization of contactless in and around the transit space. You've only got to look at the increase in contactless cards in New York since the Omni system has been deployed recently, and that's grown exponentially. And the use of contactless cards outside the transit environment has also grown to match that. We saw that in London with TfL, that there'd been so much money spent by the banks and the card issuers to try and get people to use contactless to make these smaller uh, size transaction. And just nobody got into the regular habits until it became part of the transit system. So suddenly, the value of the card issuers and the banks in almost subsidizing and really promoting the use of contactless in transit suddenly gave them a huge windfall in achieving what they've been unsuccessfully trying to do for some years in getting contactless to be a regular payment mode in the rest of merchant ecosystem. So it's really frustrating in the US to have such, this kind of 20 odd cent per transaction fee. But we have found an, another thing is becoming a bit of a barrier for the consumer, which is when a new technology like contactless EMV comes out, initially there are simplified pilots. 
So people will bolt on, you know, contactless EMV totally separately to the rest of the fare collection system. A bit like London TFL, you know, the initial contactless EMV offer was nothing like the fare capping of Oyster. It was just, here's one fee every time you tap a bank card on a bus. Doesn't give you any of the features of Oyster. It just gives you one fee when you tap on the bus. Well, that was great to get the technology working and get some early users. But there are a lot of regular riders who wouldn't pay that extra fee to be paying a full adult fare every time they tap onto a bus. It was only once the capping was introduced and it had fee equality to the old products that it really exploded. Do you see that elasticity or the, the, the user tendency to avoid new ticket methods which are more expensive until they become price comparable to their old version of tickets? I think you hit the hit the nail on the head, really. It's about the consumer at the end of the day and what the consumer is going to use and what they the consumer actually wants. I think there's a lot of us within the, the technology space. And to a certain degree, there's quite a few agencies as well who are more concerned about optimizing the technology or optimizing the operations or reducing a cost here or making something else more efficient. But at the end of the day, we've all should be looking at it from the perspective of the end user who's tapping onto that system, who actually wants to be able to travel. How should we make that as easy as possible? How do we make it cost comparable, no matter what sort of payment solution you're looking for? And I think that's what, as an industry, we, we all need to strive towards. With contactless, yes, there are issues about, you know, you don't have to register, you don't have to be, have an account, you can just sort of roll up and just tap your card and go, which is great. And I think in, in certain cities, heavily tourist cities, it's a really boon to basically getting people onto public transportation. And I know there's other people within the organization, the, the people who sort of are managing and controlling the smartphones, they're looking at ways of augmenting sort of digital CMV solutions to push information to you, to give you more insights, to allow you to understand how your journey is going to pan out, how much you've used so far or this week, or when you can expect a fair cap to actually sort of kick in. So I think those incremental technology changes are going to see a bigger adoption. But it, it does come back to the end of the day, the consumer. How do we get them using that technology on a regular basis? How do we educate them on that that new technology is coming down the pipes and is available to them? And how do we get them to sort of embrace these new technologies to make their lives easier at the end of the day? And it doesn't matter whether or not we're using sort of contactless or closed loop solutions. That's our problem as an industry to fix. How do we provide that complete solution set? Now, you mentioned about tapping your credit card and being charged for a full, full adult fare. I think that's one of the big issues that we have with open loop solutions. I've seen it myself. It's a case of one of my colleagues has basically virtualized his credit card onto his son's smartphone so he can use that to get access to the the public transport network. And then you point out, well, he's paying an adult fare every time he uses it. And it's like, I know, but it's easier for him to do it that way. So why can't we come up with a solution that has this sort of concessionary ability? Well, we, we can. We, we can, surely, Andy. I mean, it, it's perfectly possible to register a contactless EMV card or token and say, this one, we've now verified the user does have a senior citizen discount. They do have a, a student discount. They do have a disability or a veteran's discount and, and apply yeah. that to every single tap that goes through on that card. It's all perfectly solvable. But I think our issue at the moment is that one of the ones that you brought up earlier is 
Now that there's closed cards, open loop cards, mobile, mass, and some cash riders, and the system is more complex than it was 15 years ago, even though all these things are possible and theoretically possible, but the implementation detail is hard. If you're TFL, if you're New York MTA, the number of software and, and, and product analysts you can deploy against trying to make sure all your edge cases between all your different you know, bits of the system glue together so that the simple offer to the customer is, it's always going to be the best value and you're always going to pay the same price regardless of which technical solution you choose to use. But if you're a mid-sized agency, someone a bit smaller, now that we're talking about four, five, six different sales channels, that is getting more complex. How, how do you think we're going to manage this so that we don't end up with Vancouver saying contactless EMV is more expensive and setting a whole bunch of customers off with the expectation that contactless EMV is always more expensive when other people are trying to educate, no, 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 tap your bank card, we'll best fair find it and we'll tap you just the same. And they're going, but that's not how it works in Vancouver. How, how do we as an industry simplify that offer and I think that that's the crux of the problem. It's it's the million dollar question. How do we how do we provide a a TFL or a New York MTA style solution to any city that wants to be able to have that? How do we give everybody equitable access to the sort of mobility via whatever sales channel they actually want to purchase access to the public transport system? I think it's going to get even more complicated when we start looking at mobility as a service and private mobility integration and bike shares and scooters and all that good stuff. But I think for now. It's an industry problem that we've got to solve. We need to sort of be working in lockstep with the agencies to educate the agencies on paths forward about what's the, the best path forward, the best implementation path for these different sort of technologies as they come along. But also pointing out to them, if you do it this way, then there's going to be more cost impact for you, the agency that you've got to eat, but you're accessing a new sort of set of customer base as well. It's got to be that continual dialogue with the agencies. Now, some agencies get it. Transport for London fully understood, I think, the sort of implications associated with it. I think other agencies are seeing how other people are doing it and then they'll adopt it. Nobody wants to be the first one to put their head over the parapet. But a lot of the agencies now are starting to realize that they need to increase their sales channels to basically provide a better class of service to take away some of the mysticism of how you travel. I was chatting to Manali Shah from Google last week at a conference down in North Carolina. She's a committed public transport user as well. And she likes to turn up and just use her system as much as she can. She'll use her sort of contactless bank card. She'll use her virtualized credit card on her smartphone as well. At the same time, she wants to do this, but she can't. It's different in every city that you go to. There's different implementations, the different rules about what you can and can't do. I think we need to sort of get to a point where all of these combined sales channels that we've put together, however you access them, you've got to give confidence to the end user that they're only going to be charged the, the right fare at the end of the day. They're not going to be overcharged. You've got to give people the confidence that the agency is actually looking out for you and is on your side. The TFL example with the, the daily fare cap and the weekly fare cap is a perfect example of that. You can just go and tap willy-nilly all over London and travel as much as you want. But you know at the end of the day that Transport for London is going to give you the best offer that you can possibly get. And all agencies should be striving to sort of look and operate in that sort of model, I think. I certainly agree. That's that's the target. You might know my opinion on this, which is that uh, because the number of channels has gone up so much and all of these little bits of extra technical detailing have have increased so much since the days when it was 
a cash option and a, a smart card option. Now there's kind of five or six. I think the days of each agency reinventing the wheel and putting together their bespoke combination of features and their own description for how that should work and doing it themselves, or rather coming up with the description for how it should work and coming up with the specification and then putting that out on a design, build, operate, maintain procurement. I think that has now become too complicated for anything other than the giant agencies who are the the first to, to kind of do something brave for the agencies who are not kind of tier one megacity. For the others, there are now platform solutions which allow them to access something that has already got all those bits of interaction between what's on closed card, what's on ABT, what's on mobile, what's on contactless EMV, and how the cash riders get into this through retail networks rather than everything being on agency iron every time. Those solutions don't need reinventing. Well, yes and no. I think the evolution of sort of platform multi-tenant ticketing solutions is going to be the evolution that is occurring now. There are plenty of vendors out there that are providing those solutions. And I think aside from like the mega cities, the, uh, your New York, your Sydney's, your London's, where they're looking to sort of procure solutions in one go, and there's a caveat to that point I'll come back to in a second, a lot of the agencies are now looking to try and see how they can provide that level of service and functionality through these multi-tenant type solutions by choosing themselves how they're going to put together a procurement model. I think a lot of the, the large uh, mid to small type agencies are just looking for a solution that sort of fits what they need. So they're looking at, okay, we need a mobile option. We need a multi-tenant sort of back office solution. We need customer support CRM solution. So we are seeing some of these agencies procuring it all as one go, using whatever procurement models that they want. But at the same time, I'm seeing more and more agencies going for what I like, I sort of call piecemeal solutions, where people are, are want a contactless overlay solution on top. People want a mobile application. People want the ABT solution. If you look at Toronto, the way that they've broken up their sort of large Presto recompete into sort of four modules with an overarching systems integration owner. And now if you look at Transport for New South Wales, where they're open next generation, the way that they've compartmentalized into back office, middle office and hardware provider, they are looking to sort of provide a more modular solution. So they're not getting the vendor lock-in. They are getting the best options that they want and the flexibility that they need to be able to build a system that they think is going to deliver what they need for their citizens. Well, I have seen this as well. I mean, if we, if we look at Cal ITP, they've put yes. together a procurement for just the contactless EMV overlay, which they ran in a, in my opinion, overly bureaucratic and idiosyncratic way in which they threw out a whole bunch of vendors on on micro mistakes in the paperwork. And they've ended up with a set of solutions which, as far as I can tell, do the kind of basic one price kind of contactless EMV piece, but don't really link to the account-based ticketing or the fair capping or anything else. They, they, they almost by the design of the RFP, are islanded separate things. And then if ever those agencies wish to join contactless EMV to fair parity with ABT and and cash solutions or anything for equity, they're going to basically have to provide that in two places. Or they're going to, the agency is going to have to take on the integrator risk in making sure that what they bought as a piecemeal solution on contactless EMV is going to 
play nicely with whatever they've bought to take on their closed card and their mobile and everything else and and deal with that integration every time. I mean, you've you've been involved in a number of different rollouts where there's got to be really tight integration with the validator to get the closed card logic, any mobile capabilities, any other passes which are local there and the FAIRS rules for that area into that validator. If you arrived on site trying to provide parity across the whole thing and somebody said, yeah, I've already bought the validator. It's from this totally different vendor. It was absolutely the best cost option for us when we did contact the CMV, but it doesn't have a lot of storage. It runs on this operating system that you don't have a remote update capability for because it's a totally different operating system. But I want the new future solution to be very reliable in field. And I personally am very nervous about the idea of the Frankenstein's monster that will be created when where I've seen fair collection projects have very, very difficult launches, especially is where the reliability of the validator software isn't where it needs to be. I agree with you completely. I think personally, I think CalITP is a good idea, just badly executed at this point. I think there's room for improvement. I think there's a lot of input that they're taking at the moment. I think the the progression of the functions that they want to add over time to sort of build out like a complete sort of solution set for an agency to go and procure. I think it will get there. I initially think just starting out with sort of the contactless and the validators, like you say, we live in an environment, we work in an environment where interoperability is not the sort of key word that everybody wakes up with in the morning. You can't plug and play these solutions together. When you're talking about financial management and management of funds passing around, there's a level of regulation and integration that is really at the heart of the systems that we need to build. Be able to pull like a validator off a shelf and expect it to go and work with somebody else's bit of kit is naive at best. And I think some of the agencies are being Missold's a strong word, but misrepresented by sort of Cal ITP. Like I say, I think it's a good procurement model, but it's got to it's got to be fixed to a certain degree. We have to have more people playing in that sort of arena to start off with. We've got to be able to look at how you bring people in, different vendors into that solution set as well. I also think we need to start looking at because Cal ITP has become almost like a, a closed shop now. How can you start using the federal grant funds, which there's a lot of federal funds out there at the moment, but that has to be on an open procurement model. So you can't use the federal funds on a CalITP program. So it's sort of counterintuitive. I think there's something there, Hmm. but it's not quite right, but it can be fixed. Lots of phone calls with California sort of trying to educate educate them at the moment. I worry that some people who've ended up with what looks like a a very cost-effective contact with CMV only are then going to find that unless you're London... I mean, if you were London and you bought a load of validators and then you bought a new back office and said, those are the validators to use, then that integration and de-snagging cost is is perfectly reasonable in that sort of project size. But if you are a tiny little town somewhere in Southern California, you taking on that integration, you're going to have to hope somebody else does it because the software cost alone would dwarf the cost of simply replacing your validators. We've seen this before. Historically, they say we've got... We've got 60 validators deployed and we'd like you to write software to run on them. And it's like, it would be far cheaper than the software work <laughs> to just buy new validators because yeah. software work is it's, it's in that mythical man month. A validator is not just for Christmas, it's for life. And it's, you know, <laughs> when you put a software system together, 
it's not just the initial work, it's the maintaining it and keeping it up to date. Exactly. And now that, now that we've got PCI and EMV, those things have to be continuously updated. They're not just a shrink wrap that you can buy and use for 15 years. And that's and, the key thing as well. It's the understanding whose responsibility is to maintain those certifications and the cost of those certifications as well. So it's there's yeah. a lot of minefields around sort of procurement methodology, which yeah. I think a lot of people struggle with. And I, th I think there's... There's work ongoing to sort of try and simplify and explain the solutions more effectively. I know UITP is trying to do something in that front as well with their UITP Open Loop Mobility Forum, I think it's called now. I mean, some of that stuff's really good for back office to back office and allowing a heterogeneous system to exchange taps. That's all great. But where I don't think we're at plug and play interoperability on validators yet. I think there's a way. I think we can have a situation where you might buy validator hardware with someone who then takes responsibility for operating system updates and remote software push. And then you say, right, well, here's the API that allows an application to be loaded in from two other vendors who look after something else yeah. without basically the back office vendor having to take on this piece of hardware. That's what I suspect the Transport for New South Wales procurement is looking at now. That's why they've got a separate hardware solution provider. We want your readers. We want your gates. You're going to be responsible for sort of uploading management and sort of the, the interaction and interoperability with the other system components. And I think that that's great. It's a good goal to aim for. I think having like a separate back office is good as well. And having a the middle office as well, I think it's how you sort of maintain that interoperability between all these different vendors now. And I think it actually induces quite a bit of risk for the transit agency themselves into the overall procurement. And I, I hope that people are sort of considering the implication of how you actually manage this all together. Otherwise, you're going to end up with these, I think you use the word Frankenstein solutions. We're, we're starting to see them now where cities are dabbling in open loop and all of a sudden, you know, you just bolt a reader onto your existing gate and there you go, just tap here and away you go. And I think it's good. It raises awareness. It gives people a new sort of channel for that they can actually access mobility. But again, coming back to the consumer perspective, our goal should be to be removing friction from the whole experience. Hmm. Now, if you turn up in a foreign city, there's a few in Europe. They've gone for these sort of solutions where there have been overlays. And it, it's confusing at best. You turn up and you don't know which ticket you've got to tap where to get access. And that creates confusion for the user. It induces risk for the, the user and for the actual agency as well, because you might have tapped in and thought that you've done right, but now you're traveling and you haven't validated. So you could end up being fined for the agency. They could probably lose revenue. So we, we need to sort of try and simplify the whole experience and remove that friction. But we need to sort of consider how we roll out these solutions. And I think management of the hardware and the validators is just one aspect. The education of the agency on the interoperability issues and what it means is going to be critical, but actually understanding the induced risks and the operational costs associated with these different sales channels is something they need, they need to be considered as well. I know there's several cities in Europe that have tried to implement open loop overlays and the cost of operation the cost of implementation is one thing. The cost of operation, when they start looking at the cost of revenue recovery and how little they get back in terms of the, the taps that they're getting and what, how little fare they're actually getting there, it's been an eye-opener. To a certain degree, I've heard comments from cities that have basically said, it's a good job that there's been low adoption because it would actually yeah. cost us more. So, well, it's Especially funny. without aggregation, they're, they're doing a transaction every exactly. single time. 
And yep. a half solution on contactless EMV in some cases might be worse than none at all. Exactly. It'd be great if the, especially the North American card issuers and schemes would recognize just how much benefit there was when TFL took contactless low value taps mainstream and recognize that there's a conversation on right now for allowing certain low value taps to go through without the 20 odd cent Durbin transaction fee. And if they can get that right, there's a real opportunity. But I, I, just as you were saying, I think we've got to get a consistency of experience for the consumer of trust that if they're tapping the CMV, they're going to get the best price and yeah. that we, we we don't have it fall apart with complicated reasons that we as fair collection insiders totally understand why that's happened and how expensive it would be to create the Frankenstein's connection between the old fair system and the new fair system the way it was bought. But if we can get the industry away from huge upfront software builds and desnagging, there won't be as much lock-in. So they, they yes. won't feel that they have to break it so much into, I, may, I want a separate supplier for my validators and a separate supplier for back office and a separate supplier for middleware, et cetera. If they weren't putting three to five years of software build at the beginning of every project that they were locked into, if they were able to put something in as cheaply as installing new validators and trying it and know that if that's not doing the work for them, they haven't got the sunk cost fallacy that's leading them back in to say, the project that put in the new bus validators was part of a $200 million project. And you actually go, well, we only actually fitted $6 million worth of validators. So if that's some cost as a tier one city, then it's not so scary. I, I, I know there's a big there's a big civils and, and, and engineering project yeah, to turn I mean, them over, but I don't think we need the multi-hundred million software integration at the front every time. And I, I think that'll reduce the, the, the lock-in. I think there's a lot there's a lot of points going into that one. I think a lot of cities will define exactly what they want in terms of a fair collection solution. And a lot of times they are assisted by consultants to help them sort of go through that process. And sometimes the consultants might personally feel are not operating in the best interests of the actual transit agency. They overcomplicate things. And we I've seen RFPs that have come out in the past that have been incredibly specific to the point where you're thinking, this is inducing a hell of a lot of cost for the transit agency at the end of the day. We're seeing more and more vendors now providing sort of productized solutions, which allow for minor augmentation and tweaking to actually fit it into what, what the agency is actually looking for. But I think if agencies approached it with more open mind and started looking at more, the more productized solutions, I think that would solve a lot of the problems. I think if we move away from the, like you say, the large upfront software hits, it's going to make life a hell of a lot easier for the agencies. Because if we're providing productized solutions, it's going to drive down the cost, provide more of an open market for people to provide their component pieces for these solutions in the future. Wild, loud, thunderous agreement with you there, Andy. Before we finish today, I'd love to get your pick for our our underdog and boondoggle, either as ideas or technologies. Which undersung heroes and which white elephants would you call out from the industry at the moment? So I think from my perspective, the, the, the white elephant, the one that keeps surfacing its head occasionally is the whole sort of discussion around blockchain. It really does my fruit. It, people have come up to me and said, blockchain can solve everything. We can do this open leisure. We can do this. We can do that. And it's we, we spend more time 
trying to think how we can force blockchain into public transport and mobility as a service. And that time could be better spent just sort of trying to improve on interoperability and have better open discussions between people. It, it might be a solution, but again, it's that try before you buy mentality. Let me see it working in something else that's adjacent that might be considered. But at the moment, there's enough going on in public transport and private mobility without trying to start forcing blockchain as part of the solution. So I just wish people would leave me alone for the next five years about blockchain. Definitely agree, especially in its proof of work method, which the energy use and complexity almost wipes out any environmental benefit from using public transit. If you've dragged a blockchain and consensus forming computer system along with you to try and do something very basic like a, a multi-operator, multi-vendor yep. ticket, which can be done through other conventional technologies with no need for yep. a, a blockchain. You're trying to use a sledgehammer to crack a walnut at this point. It's yep. it's completely inefficient. So let's park blockchain. Yeah. I think that agree. The what about what about your un, your 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 unsung hero, your your underdog? My unsung hero would be something that I classify as almost like a mobility ID, something that would enable me. And I've seen a few people try to do it. It annoys me every time I go to a new city. I like to use public transport and I will use shared mobility if there's an option. But I'll go to where I live in Alexandria, Virginia. There's three scooter companies and I've got all three apps loaded. And then the other day I went to Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, and there was two new scooter companies that I'm thinking, oh, I've now got to go through and register again if I want to use them. And I'm thinking this is becoming a real pain. So I would like, and I know a few people have tried, but if I could create a mobile ID or link it to an account or something that basically says, I open up the button and I I tap the MasterCard ID button or whatever, and it sort of auto-populates and it's got my card on file credentials. It's got proof that I'm, I've got a driving license. It, you know, and in some instances we can build in that concessionary information as well, that I'm a child, that I'm a senior, that I'm, I'm a student, that I, I need access uh, for the, for these particular reasons. And a few have tried to sort of do this, but it really needs a lot more focus. I think if we can sort of crack this, People's apprehension about using different mobility solutions will be reduced. And I think that would make the whole discussion about bringing together better mobility options a lot easier. That is such a, a wonderful view. I, I mean, it's part of what we start to see from what Masabi is called practical mass, which is where we say instead of starting out by trying to make a, a, a mass app and then force lots and lots of mobility providers to integrate into it, we just say, provide APIs and SDKs, which can then be integrated up into the existing transit journey planners and be quite flexible about the payments. So that, for example, somebody who's jumping off a plane in Denver or Vegas can buy public transit tickets using the user account and the payment credentials that they installed into their Uber app back when they were in Tel Aviv or into their Moveit app when they were in Berlin. And this idea that to, to get a scooter, they didn't have to open a new scooter app. They just used the payment credentials and user account that they'd done before. And I think that can come quite nicely. And that goes back to the conversation at the start. We've just got to make it easier for people. Take the friction out of it. You know, let's not overcomplicate it. Give people simple means to access mobility. That's got to be the key. And I, I think 
if it's like a Calypso card with sort of public encryption, that's fine. If it's like a mobile ID solution, that's fine, but just make it easier. Let's remove those barriers to entry so people want to use mobility instead of fear using mobility when they turn up in a new city. Excellent. That uh, does sound right. And it's been great having a conversation with you, Andy. Uh, who would you recommend as another voice we should speak to just to, to get their bit of their story and uh, their views on, on some of the challenges and exciting things happening in transit? One person I, I re- respect quite highly is Bonnie Crawford, who runs the, the UMO platform. I think she's done absolute wonders with that team, but I respect her more for her drive for equity and inclusion. She's really been beating the drum for making sure that people have equitable access. And I think even the things that she does with her own team, when she has these all hands meetings, it's a case of she makes the team get there by bus or use the bus or use public transport and will quite openly admonish people who just turn up in a Lyft or an Uber. And I think forcing people to actually use the solution is probably the best way to get it fixed quicker. Because if you're standing there and you can't use your credit card or you can't use your iPhone and you've got to start wondering whether or not I've got to get cash or what I've got to buy to get on the bus. I think what she does with her team by making them go through that user experience is fantastic. And I think she's got some great insights into the the evolution of the small to mid to large market multi-tenant platform evolutions as well. Fantastic. That that will be a good one as Umo has been one of the real early platforms to the market trying to make sure that, you know, our mid-tier and and smaller towns have options other than having to take on these huge software builds at the beginning. Transit executives using transit it's not unusual in Europe, but I don't think it's as widespread in North America as it is. It no, I think it would put the fear of God into a lot of them if you basically just gave them a ten dollar note and said, "Right, get from A to B." Yeah. You could see fear sort of you know cloud over in their eyes. I'm pretty sure, but more people should do it. If you're putting these solutions together, go and use them yourself, and then sort of see how easy that you've made it. And if you're having trouble, imagine everybody else trying to have trouble with it as well. Brilliant. Well, that's, that's a fantastic lesson all in one in your recommendation. Thank you so much for spending the time with us today, Andy, and look forward to uh, bumping into you in person soon. No problem, Ben. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Well, thanks so much to Andy Taylor for joining us this month. I certainly agree with him on a number of points, especially around not adding too much complexity of reinventing the wheel on upfront procurements, avoiding that big software build. And, you know, the role that consultants can play in trying to help agencies efficiently get to what they need rather than overcomplicating it up front. And certainly, uh, you know, his views on things like Cal ITP is a good idea executed badly. And the fact that it's a bit naive to think that validators are plug and play and could be chopped and changed between different back offices. I don't think we're quite there yet as an industry, especially with the complexity of all the different types of fares and the MVPCI lifecycle. I'm certainly uh, thankful to him for suggesting that we uh, have a chat with Bonnie Crawford from Cubic and Umo, also beating the drum about shared multi-tenant platforms. So we'll have her on very shortly. Tune in next month to find out more from Transit Voices. You've listened to Transit Voices, the podcast by transit nerds for transit nerds. Don't forget to subscribe to Transit Voices to keep up with the latest editions on your favorite podcast platform.